There's been a lot of talk about 2020 being this kind of cartoonishly awful year. The sense that there are just no limits to the bad things that might still happen in the two and a bit months that remain. And that's why when tremors were felt in Cape Town on 26 September from an earthquake that occurred off South Africa's coast, there was a sense of, obviously, obviously this would be the year in which we get hit by earthquakes as well. The thing about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's forced us to face the previously unimaginable. If you'd told anyone in 2019 that an unknown disease would shut down the world for the best part of the following year and kill over a million people worldwide, most people would have looked at you as if you were crazy. In 2020, pretty much anything seems possible. And that's why we thought we'd devote this episode to imagining the worst. Because as the Stoics of ancient Greece knew, there can be a weird kind of comfort in seriously considering what's the worst that could happen. This week, we're indulging that darkness and asking, what would happen in the event of a giant earthquake or a tsunami or nuclear meltdown? 2020, we're stepping up to stay right in the eyes. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. We need to just realize that a a major earthquake or a major tsunami is going to be absolutely devastating. I mean, you know, as well as what Japan were prepared for that tsunami, they lost 17,000 people. So it's not an easy thing to respond to. That's Colin Dana, who's the head of the Western Cape Disaster Management Center. Colin doesn't sound like a guy who's easily ruffled, but over the more than three decades of his career, he's seen some things. The worst emergency scenarios Colin has responded to haven't been in South Africa. He's led local rescue teams to respond to disasters all over the world. Earthquakes in Turkey, India, Iran and Haiti, to floods in Malawi and Mozambique, and to the tsunami in Japan in 2011. And of these terrible situations, he says a tsunami poses the ultimate challenge for search and rescue teams. A tsunami is a very difficult thing because an earthquake gives you time. You've got time to be able to respond, even if somebody's trapped. You know, we've had cases of people surviving up to nine days, you know, trapped. If, they, if they're not trapped that severely and there's, you know, water around, flowing water or whatever, people can survive for a long time in a collapsed building. But the moment it's a tsunami, it's water. And once your head goes underwater, it's, it's a couple of minutes at best. Doing what Colin does takes a toll. Particularly, he says, when you're working far from home and you can't come back to your family at night. It requires mental strength and trust in your teammates. And even then, he says, it's hard to shake off the things you've seen. It affects everybody. I've been doing this job for about 36 years now, and there's still the incidents that you, if I can use the term, carry with you for a very long time. We spoke to the Western Cape Disaster Management because, for reasons we'll discuss shortly, the Western Cape is more at risk than the rest of South Africa from being hit by an earthquake or an earthquake offshore, which triggers a tsunami. In the unlikely event that that does happen, Colin has a highly trained team who would immediately be called into action. 
So we train the guys in a very, very highly specialized skill. They spend about six weeks to ultimately become a very well-trained rescue technician. It starts with basic training like motor vehicle rescue, rope rescue, which we call high angle. Then it goes on to confined space rescue, where you learn to rescue people out of, you know, spaces like, for example, pressure vessels, etc., where they might have been working. We then teach them trench collapse rescue, swift water rescue for rescuing people out of floods. And then eventually, once you've got all those qualifications, you do the structural collapse course. So we do that every year. You obviously have to be a but specialized as a, as a rescuer to do that. Once you've passed that course, you become part of our system. Now, it doesn't mean you sit around waiting for a major disaster to occur. These guys and girls are pretty much all emergency services workers, whether they're paramedics, firefighters, you know, whatever the case may be. If a major incident would happen, these people would get called up and they would then staff those specific units and be able to respond as what we call a task force to deal with a kind of incident. And Colin says another thing a lot of people don't realize is that in the event of a major natural disaster, South Africa would immediately be able to summon international help. There's a very good system that the United Nations has. It's called INSARAG, which stands for the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group. And what that basically is, all the rescue teams, these big task forces in the world. And you can imagine the bigger countries, you know, Japan, Germany, the USA, the UK have major teams, you know, that 60 odd members. Now, these teams are capable of responding anywhere in the world within 24 hours. So let's say, for example, we had a major earthquake in Cape Town. Initially, what we would do is we would respond with the people we've trained, you know, as I explained a bit earlier. Gauteng has a task force. We would ask them to respond and they would then be sort of the next wave in. But then immediately you can ask for international assistance. It doesn't come at any cost. So within 24 hours, we could probably have about, you know, six or seven, depending on what we ask for rescue teams right here assisting us. And I think that that really makes the response process a lot easier. As Colin says, there's no question that in the event of a major earthquake, somewhere like Cape Town is going to suffer serious structural damage by which he means buildings collapsing. But actually, there's some comfort to be found here too, because Colin says the buildings you might worry about the most could be sturdier than you think. What's very interesting is the older buildings normally do better. As the concrete gets older and older, it becomes more and more robust and harder. Modern buildings are generally built to take a lot of wind uh, specifically high-rise buildings. So, you know, a lot of people sort of have the idea that your high-rise buildings are going to be the ones that are going to collapse. And that's normally not the case because of the fact that they built to take a lot of tension and especially with what we can expect in the Western Cape. So there are perhaps some unexpected silver linings there. But one Cape Town building that experts say we should be worried about in the event of an earthquake is the Greenpoint Stadium. Because if an earthquake measuring 6.96 on the Richter scale should hit Cape Town, in other words, a massive one, they estimate almost 20% of the stadium would be damaged, which would amount to almost a billion rand in reconstruction costs. One of the experts who's written about the concerns around Greenpoint Stadium is Professor Andre Kiko, who's the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Pretoria. 
But even though Professor Kiko, as a seismologist, spends his days thinking about earthquakes, he's the first to say the rest of us shouldn't. On the list of things we could be worrying about, earthquakes should be pretty low down. That's because South Africa is on the least earthquakey continent in the world. Or to put it slightly more technically, the seismologically quietest continent. That's not to say we're totally safe. There is still seismic activity in South Africa. Two types, in fact. The first most commonly affects the mining towns around Northwest and the Northern Cape. And the second most often hits the Western Cape. Here's Prof Kiko. About 90%, if not more, maybe 95 even, of seismicities is induced seismicity, induced by mining, by deep mining, and uh, which can generate um, seismic events, which we don't like to call them earthquakes. We like to call them seismic events, which can, can generate some damage in mining areas. Which of us who was living in the, close to the mining areas, we know them, we experience them but they are not really very big. The second group, it's a tectonic earthquakes, the natural earthquakes, the tectonic origin earthquakes, which are generated by residual stresses in our Earth, they are really very seldom, but they can be much more stronger. And this is what we experience in Cape Town several times. And Cape Town, for some reasons, is prone to, to earthquakes. The two most famous earthquakes in the history of South Africa happened in the Western Cape. The first was in 1809, and it occurred along the Milneton Fault in Cape Town. The second, in 1969, virtually destroyed the Western Cape village of Tulbach. Kiko says both these quakes were 6.3 on the Richter scale, which generates an equivalent amount of energy to the combined atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you're speaking about how serious is the threat of earthquake to South Africa, in South Africa, very seldom we have them, very seldom have, but if they will happen in vicinity of the infrastructure or the people they live, they can be really dangerous. Kiko says it's almost impossible to predict with any certainty when earthquakes will hit. But the scary thing is this, wherever they've happened before, they will happen again. If we have earthquakes in the past, we know that they will happen in the future. We know that they will happen. We don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly the size, but if it was a strong earthquake, it will happen again in the vicinity of the area where already it took place. Here's the reason why this is scary. Because that Milneton fault line, which has been the site of seismic activity in the past, that starts about eight kilometers from the Kuburg nuclear power station. We're not in the business of panic-mongering, so let's make this message loud and clear. Most experts, including Prof Kiko, believe that even if a major earthquake strikes in the vicinity of Kuburg, the nuclear power station will be safe. That's because it was built in the years after the Tulbach quake, when the amount of damage that could be wreaked by an earthquake was all too clear and it was specifically designed to withstand earthquakes. But it's also true that just the thought of earthquakes plus nuclear power stations is the stuff of nightmares. The 2011 nuclear disaster at Fukushima in Japan was precipitated by an earthquake. 
And there are people who have listened to the repeated assurances given by authorities about Kuburg who still aren't convinced. One of them is the founder of the Kuburg Alert Alliance, Peter Becker, who first got interested in the topic of nuclear power when he was helping educate Cape Town school kids on the potential of wind energy. I was giving a talk at a school in Cape Town when I came across a poster, and it was a poster comparing different types of energy. And of course, I was interested in wind because that's what I was talking about, so I read about it. And it said how wind turbines are dangerous, they kill birds and bats, they decimate property values, and I thought that's a bit bleak. Then I looked at the solar panel section and it said how solar panels are made with poisonous chemicals and they're really dangerous and something. And then I looked at the section on nuclear power and it said nuclear power stations are like Lego and they're safe as anything and they produce no pollution. And I thought, really, that that looks a bit fishy. I also saw that there were advantages and disadvantages listed for all energy types. And for nuclear, it had only one disadvantage. And it is still shocks me today to remember that the only disadvantage, according to this poster of nuclear power, was negative public perception based on outdated and incorrect information. So that really got my goat. And I realized that there's a lot of deception going on here. And if nuclear power was such a good and safe idea, why was it necessary to deceive at this level? Peter has been trying to raise public awareness of the risks associated with nuclear energy ever since. Because he believes that to talk about a nuclear power station within 30 kilometers of central Cape Town as safe is just a fundamentally misleading idea. When we ask the question how safe something is, we need to actually look at that word safe. And the key to it is that it means different things to an engineer and the person in the street. And a good example is airliners. Airliners are the safest form of travel ever created by mankind. It's safer than walking on the street. But that doesn't mean airliners don't crash. And we know that happens, the 737 MAX disaster recently. And every now and again, despite being so safe, there is a crash. So when the public hears the word safe, they interpret that to mean nothing will ever go wrong. And that's not the actual meaning of the word safe. To an engineer, it means that this device meets the defined standards of manufacture, and therefore it qualifies as safe according to definitions. Peter's point is that we think of disasters as one bad event. So an earthquake hits, but Kuburg has been built to withstand earthquakes, so Kuburg survives the event intact. But actually, there's a whole constellation of other factors which also have to be in place. I think we tend to make the mistake of thinking of disasters as singular events. For example, Let's think about having a big earthquake in Cape Town at a time when the economy is healthy, we're not in the midst of a pandemic, government disaster management services are well-funded, they're competent, the national health system has adequate capacity, the weather is fine and mild on the day, the sea level hasn't risen, ESCOM has paid meticulous attention to maintaining its power stations, and all the Kuburg nuclear safety protocols have been strictly followed. So when a disaster happens in that environment, we have a certain plan and a way of dealing with it. But that's really quite an idyllic picture, and the reality may be very different. Lately, for instance, he's been thinking about something most of us have probably never considered, the potential effects of a health emergency, like the one we're currently experiencing, on a nuclear power station. I've been very concerned about the effect of the pandemic on the nuclear plant. 
Because what would happen if your key technical staff were present at some kind of super spreader event and were all rendered incapable of working? What would happen in that scenario when you're working on a reduced complement of technical staff and then perhaps an earthquake happened? What would happen if those things happened at the same time? It's also obviously not just an earthquake which could cause disaster at Kuburg. There's also human error and inadequate maintenance, something for which ESCOM is famous. Peter believes that if more of the public was aware that Kuburg contributes only 2% of electricity to the national grid, the risks involved in keeping this nuclear power plant operational would start to seem increasingly irrational when you consider the catastrophic consequences of something going wrong. It's interesting to note that Fukushima is actually the name of a province in Japan, but yet to you and I, Fukushima means nuclear disaster. So if something happened at Kubo, it might be known as the Western Cape nuclear disaster. So if you saw a package deal for a nice holiday in Fukushima now, would you want to go there? You know, maybe not. Never mind that Fukushima is a province that covers, I think, 14,000 square kilometers or something. You wouldn't want to buy mushrooms from Fukushima. So what would happen to the wine industry of the Western Cape in that scenario? What would happen to tourism industry? Would you like a package holiday to the Western Cape or Cape Town after you've heard about a nuclear disaster? It would be a collapse of the tourism industry, of the wine industry, and of several related industries. And that might have a cascading effect. It might well lead to the complete collapse of the economy of the Western Cape. And that might even lead to major problems in the economy of the country. One of the factors that leave activists like Peter not particularly comforted by the constant assurances that Kuburg is safe is the level of secrecy that surrounds it, which is a necessity when you're dealing with a nuclear power station and the security risk that poses. Secrecy shrouds pretty much everything to do with Kuburg, including what would happen in surrounding suburbs in the city of Cape Town in the event of disaster. But Peter has seen one of the emergency evacuation plans now a couple of years old, and he isn't very impressed. Firstly, we don't know how many people live close to Kuburg because the last census that was done was, I think, 2012. So that's difficult to know. We do know that they plan to use Golden Arrow buses to evacuate people, but those are no longer so prevalent, so apparently the change has been made to use My City buses. So My City bus drivers will be told to drive towards the nuclear disaster and to pick people up in a calm way and to drive them to collection points. So uh, there are a few problems with that. Firstly, it contravenes labor regulations. You can't tell someone to drive into a dangerous situation, so they'd all be quite within their rights to refuse. Secondly, the plan is to take people to collection points, and one of them is the Belleville Velodrome. Can you imagine during a pandemic taking thousands of people and telling them to shelter in the Velodrome and trying to avoid them infecting each other? That's really kind of impossible. I asked the Western Cape's disaster management chief, Colin Dana, what plans were in place in the event of a Kuburg disaster. He didn't give me details, but he sketched it in broad terms. 
Every year we do a tabletop. We're actually required by the National Nuclear Regulator to do exercises. So there is a plan. There are agreements in place with the municipalities bordering Cape Town, like the Cape Winelands District, the West Coast District, you know, the municipalities in those areas, whereby we can actually evacuate people to this control around movement of food. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very vast plan, which looks at, at a whole lot of different scenarios and how you would deal with them. You know, Kuburg doesn't only have the reactor. Kuburg also has a lot of hazardous chemicals, which is used in their various processes. So obviously, as you said earlier, you know, the earthquake is not the only risk. There's a whole lot of others. So we have to look at all those possibilities and how you then would be able to respond if that's necessary. But yeah, we have evacuation plans. We have plans on how to block off the area, control of foodstuffs, the dissemination of medication, you know, to people who could be affected. And we practice that every year. Colin says the trickiest part would be trying to evacuate people from Cape Town in a calm and controlled way and trying to prevent panicked people jumping in their cars and trying to drive to Namibia. Everybody, you know, follows their own minds. You then end up with huge traffic jams and and things like that. So we've learned quite a lot from other countries with the Japanese tsunami, for example. We worked in a town where they had a very controlled evacuation and they lost out of the... I think 300,000 people in that area, maybe 500. Sounds terrible, but, you know, if you think of what the difference could be, and it's really just because of a controlled evacuation. Far be it from me to trade in national stereotypes, but it struck me that that's a situation that might work a lot better in Japan than in South Africa. Yeah, I would think so. I think uh, there's a lot more, you know, just uh, just an anecdote, if I may. When we traveled from Tokyo to to Sendai, where the earthquake was, we needed to put in fuel. And we drove past queues of kilometers of people waiting for like two hours to put in 15 liters of fuel. And the, the comment was made, we probably won't see that in South Africa. Kuburg's operating license expires in 2024. It's Peter's greatest wish that it's shut down after that, and that the process of safely disposing of all its radioactive materials takes place. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen. There are indications that ESCOM is planning to extend Kuberg's life for another 20 years. I asked Peter if he sometimes feels like a crazy voice crying in the wilderness, while everyone else just gets on with life, oblivious to the dangers, rarely, if ever, thinking about earthquakes or tsunamis or nuclear meltdowns? I think so. And obviously, we all operate in our bubbles to a degree. So I am surrounded by a lot of other people who share my concerns. So I don't feel too alone in in that way. I also understand that there are a lot of concerns that everyone has, and some are more pressing and some are more theoretical, you know. And when the concerns are that, that many people aren't going to get a good meal tonight, that can take precedence over something that says, well, there's a small chance we'll have to evacuate the city, you know. So I understand it, and I just feel it's my role to keep pecking away and try and make people aware of the problem, and also to talk constructively about what we can do, you know, because there's no point in just moaning and saying things are wrong. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. 
This episode was produced by Haji Muhammad Dauji with sound engineering, editing, and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok Shapiro, and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on the Daily Mavericks website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.